Well, can I invite you to turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 2 again? So we looked at Genesis chapter 2 last week, and we're going to have another pass over it. So let me read uh, the passage we read last week uh, from verse 4 down to the end of the chapter. And do you remember that God has made uh, everything in six days and all very good, and then he rested on the seventh day? And then verse 4 picks it up where it says, where Moses tells us, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name name of the first is the Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him to work in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his, its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Amen. Uh, Last week we looked at this passage, and uh, this chapter, and we we focused on the creation of man and woman. And there was a very uh, practical intention to that, uh, because knowing how God has created men and women, uh, human beings, helps us to understand His intentions for human beings today. And it's notable, I think, that at the end of the chapter uh, that we just read... 
uh, having described how man and woman were made, Moses says, therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, Moses, of course, writing this, is is speaking long after Adam and Eve, uh, long after the world has been radically changed by sin, uh, but he's speaking to his generation, he's speaking to the Israelites uh, about the basis of marriage between man and a woman. And, uh, of course, that's the basis that we have today. It still applies today. We're still in that post-fall period, aren't we? And uh, marriage still matters, and that's what we... uh, looked at uh, last time. And it's not just that this is teaching for Christians, uh, this, is, this is teaching for all people, because Adam and Eve stand at the head of a whole humanity. And so it's God's good gift to all human beings. That's why marriage is, uh, is not, as some churches say, a sacrament, but it's actually a, a civil function. It's, uh, uh, it's something for all human beings. Well, we dealt with that last week. So let's move on. Let's think about something else. Uh, let's, uh, I want us to take a second pass over this chapter. And this time, uh, focusing not so much on the relationship between man and woman uh, as, as God formed it, but this time looking at the environment into which mankind was, was put. And here I'm not thinking... S- Uh, just about the physical environment, but the environment of relationship to God, that relational environment that uh, God establishes, as we'll we'll see. And I want to examine with you what this relationship tells us, what this, uh, this environment tells us about that relationship, and about the future for Adam and Eve and for all, uh, for humanity. So I want to do that by looking at three features of that are present in this uh, this story. Three physical features, but they represent something. Uh, the first is the Garden of Eden itself. I want to say something about that. And then secondly, the Tree of Life. And then thirdly, that other tree, the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. And then in conclusion, I want to... S- to see what that means for us as believers in the 21st century. But first of all, this garden of God that you find here in Genesis chapter 2. And you'll notice, you'll have noticed the transformation, we touched on this a little bit last week, that the transformation that God works uh, in his creation, as God works on the earth to bring order out of chaos. And so in verse 5, the land is described as a barren place. There are no bushes of the field, no plants of the field. There is a, a, a kind of complete barrenness about the place. It's not yet finished. And there's no rain yet, so you may have noticed that as well. And, and instead, the land is irrigated by a mist that comes out, up out of the ground. So you can just imagine the humidity <laughs> of that uh, place. And it's into that setting, after forming man, that the Lord God sets about the work of planting a garden in Eden. What's the significance then of this garden? 
And one of the things that we need to realize uh, as we begin to launch into this is that these are real things in a real place, but the things themselves have symbolic significance. In other words, they point far beyond themselves. They, They say something by their existence. And notice, I'm not saying here that this is a, a merely a mythical story with symbolic references. What I am saying is these are real things that God develops in the garden that have significance far beyond themselves. And what God is doing is creating this environment into which he has placed mankind so that God can enter into communion with him. The man and woman that he has made, God wants to have relationship with him. And God himself wants to give himself to man and woman in relationship uh, as he works out this relationship with them. You see, this garden is not Adam's garden, it's not Eve's garden, it's actually the garden of God. That's what Ezekiel 27.13 says when it references Eden. It says this is the garden of God. And so it's, it describes that place where fellowship with God can be established. And so we see a number of things that come together uh, to emphasize what, uh, all of this. And we've seen already, uh, we had talked about this briefly last week, you will, you will have noticed that in going from chapter 1 into chapter 2, uh, there's a, a name change. God is called Elohim in chapter 1, it's just God. Uh, but as we get into chapter 2, it's Yahweh, Elohim. Uh, the covenant name of God. God makes himself known as a God with a name, as personal. And uh, we uh, talked about that last, last time. But it's, this garden is also good to look at and is good to eat from. Uh, it's an enjoyable place to be. There's pleasure, therefore in the presence of God uh, brought about and enhanced by all of these wonderful things in the garden and then in verse 10 you find there's a river the river is mentioned now why does a river uh, matter? well it's not just a a geographical detail although it is a geographical detail but it's not just that rivers in the Bible always speak of life and fullness and abundance and growth. Uh, Psalm 46, verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Or take Jesus speaking to the women at the well in John chapter 4, verse 10. And he speaks about how the Messiah would give living water, which literally is running water. In other words, this is not just a stagnant pool but it's a running, living river of life. And then you find in the book of Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible, the city of God has a river flowing. Where does it come from? It comes from the throne of God. It's as though God, from God comes this glorious life, a river of life flowing from God. 
such is his grace and such is his goodness that life flows from him to all his creation a wonderful picture so you see God is, is the giver of life true life, real life as people live in communion with him and this is what's pictured here in Eden and then finally, just uh, in passing, the, the precious metals. You know, did you see the precious metals and the stones? Uh, the gold that is good, the bedellum, the onyx stone. Now, all of that speaks of the richness of this life with God. Richness, abundance, fullness. So did you get the idea of what this God is like that you find in the Bible? Not an abstract deity up there somewhere. Not a distant ogre who is angry, but a God of love and grace who is willing to give himself unreservedly to his creatures. And this is set out for us right at the beginning of the Bible. And it's a, it's a theme that's all the way through the Bible. But this is a God who, who himself always takes the initiative, reaching out to his creatures with his goodness, to share the riches of his own self with them, which, he, which people can experience in communion with him. I wonder if you've ever thought about God like that. Well, I hope this account of the garden has helped dispel any false ideas that you may have in your mind. That you will see him as the most gracious, the best, the most loving God human beings can possibly conceive of and far beyond. And if you've ever felt if there is a God that he is cold and distant and inaccessible, then please think again. It may be that the God you believe in or the God that you're trying not to believe in is nothing like this God. This is the God, the God of the Bible you see is inexhaustibly good and inexhaustibly gracious, bursting with life and vitality. That he is willing to share his life with any who will turn their faces towards him. And if you have not already, will you not come to him and receive from him? Well, as you think about that, let's move on to the second feature of this garden, the tree of life. The tree of life is only mentioned once in this chapter, uh, in verse 9. Uh, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There it is, two trees. Well, let's think about this tree of life. And the first thing to say about it is, of course, that it's a real tree. <laughs> it may seem obvious, but you know, some people think it's not a real tree. And there's nothing magical about this tree. Um, you know, a tree that's endued with mystical powers, that if you eat of it, somehow you become superman or superwoman, or something like that. Uh, many people think like that, and it's, uh, it's a mistake. Remember, that these are ordinary things in the garden, but they are given symbolic significance by God himself. In other words, they point to something beyond itself. So what does it point to? Well, it's, it's in the name, isn't it? Points to life, the tree of life. But it seems to be that this tree is being set apart by God as a representation 
of life that actually goes far beyond what Adam already has. I mean, just think about it. Here's, here's Adam in the garden. He has uh, everything he needs to enjoy fellowship with God and to enjoy life with God. Here in the garden, what could be better than this? And yet, God points out a tree that's called the tree of life. Now, if Adam had everything that he needed, why would God point out a tree that is the tree of life? Now, Adam would always know, therefore, because God has pointed it out, that that's a special tree. God has singled it out. Uh, now you can just just to get get your mind around this this idea. Um, you know how somebody you know sometimes sometimes someone loses a loved one, and they might want to plant a tree in their memory. Uh, if you go up to the the, the national arboretum, uh, you'll see a whole forest of trees with names attached to them of uh, service men and women who have fallen in the line of duty. And it's not that the trees are any, anything special, but they're only special because they're labelled and they're pointed out. And woe beside anybody who go, goes and damages the trees because they stand for something. Well, this tree of life that God has put into the garden stands for something. What does the tree say? It says, whatever you have, Adam... There's more. <laughs> There's more to come. There's so much more to come. This tree stands for something that's yet to be fulfilled. Even beyond Eden. Eden, if, if something could be imagined beyond Eden, then the tree of life is pointing to it. Now I think this is, becomes clearer when we begin to reflect on the other features uh, of uh, this, this garden. Uh, and the particular issue is, is the possibility, and we'll come to the tree of knowledge of good and evil in a minute, but the possibility of disobedience is there in the garden. Have you ever thought about that? The possibility of disobedience. And that command is given to, to Adam in verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day of you eat of it you shall surely die. So there's a, there's a command not to disobey, so the possibility of disobedience is there, but there's also a, a warning and a threat of death if you do eat it. And there is that sense, therefore, that all is not finished yet. That that needs to be removed. And then fullness of life will come. Well, of course, Adam does disobey in the end. And it ends up that the access to the tree is lost. This tree of life. Uh, if you look ahead to 3.22, and we'll look at this in the coming weeks, but in 3.22... The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, God, the Lord God, sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and, the east, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and, the, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So it seems then 
that the garden, though it is a place of great blessing for Adam and Eve, yet it is not yet the final resting place of Adam and Eve. There's more beyond what they currently enjoy. Eden is good, but there is a future glory that is even better. That the tree of life is to be a continual reminder to Adam and Eve in Eden that there is more. And do you see how the, the grace of God is multiplied to Adam and Eve? Not only do they have all that they want, but there is a hope of a future glory to come. Even greater than they already enjoy. Now, even after the fall, though access to the life that the tree symbolizes is lost, there is that sense in which Adam can no longer obey his way back into the tr- access to the tree of life. That route is now closed after chapter 3. Yet the tree of life keeps coming back into Scripture. I wonder if you've ever noticed this. Uh, when we were looking at the book of Proverbs re- recently, in Proverbs chapter 3, uh, the writer of the book of Proverbs says, Wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Uh, it's kind of suggesting that there's another way to the tree of life. And then the New Testament, you come to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and uh, verse 7. And Jesus says to the Ephesian church, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. You see, the tree of life is coming back to the church. And eating from the tree is held out to the church now as a future glory, glorious experience to be, to be received. But it was denied to Adam in his disobedience. And then what do you find at the end of the Bible, in chapter 22, in the city of God, in that, where the throne is at the centre and that river of life flows from the, tr- from the throne, then either, either side of that river is the tree of life. It's like the fulfilment of all that eschatological hope. The fullness of life has come. Now before we move on to the next point, uh, it's worth just reflecting on this question. If Adam lost access to the tree because of his first sin, and there is no possibility now that he could obey his way back into it, having become corrupt, how is it possible then that the tree of life can be accessed by the people of God? in Revelation 22. And of course the answer to that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just say a couple of brief things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is a sense in which Jesus comes uh, as another Adam. In fact, the New Testament calls him, 1 Corinthians 15.45, the last Adam. He becomes a life-giving spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's because when Jesus came, he was able to do all that Adam did not do. Jesus, the Son of God, became man and then proceeded to be fully obedient to his Father in heaven. He didn't fail 
like Adam did. And then secondly, second brief thing, it's not an accident, I think, that the apostles, two of the apostles, refer to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ as a tree. Uh, Acts 13.29, Paul speaking, uh, preaching the gospel, and he speaks about the tree upon which Jesus died. Or 1 Peter 2.24, Peter speaks about the tree upon which Christ was crucified. And there is a sense in which the cross is a tree of death for Jesus, but it becomes a tree of life for you and me if we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. So to sum up these two things, access to the tree of life, which was put into the Garden of Eden, and then the way blocked to it, but then a reappearing later in the Bible, that access was gained again by a fully obedient Son of God, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And Jesus bought that through his shed blood on the cross. So my friends, if the blessedness of the garden is beautiful, displaying the goodness and grace of God to his image bearers, how much more is this placing of the tree of life in the garden as well? Because even beyond Eden, there is so much more to be had. So by all means, use the description of evil to, uh, Eden rather, to revel in the amazing goodness of God. But realize that whatever you have thought, think to yourself, but there is even more. There is even more. Well, here's a third feature, and we'll be much quicker on this one. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like the tree of life, it's introduced in two, chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis. And more of it is said about it, more is said about it in the garden uh, in this chapter. And again, it's worth just pointing out, there's nothing magical about this tree. It's just an ordinary tree, but it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's given significance by God because he says it has significance. And there's two things about it. Its name and how Adam is to relate to it. Now, I'll come to the name in a minute, but let me just uh, talk with you about how Adam is to relate to it. He's not to eat of it, verse 17. And it's not, that it's, it's not that the tree is bad for him. In fact, the opposite is true, as we'll see in chapter 3. The food is good and delightful to the eyes. But what matters here is that God has spoken. That God has given a command. Uh, Adam is not to eat simply and only because God has said, don't eat from it. In other words, Adam is to pay attention to the word of God. To pay attention to the command of God. He's not to listen to his feelings. He's not to listen to his wife. Or or respond to his senses telling him, eat it, eat it, eat it. He is to leave it aside. He's only to listen to God. And if he does not, there's this warning, you shall surely die. In other words, something profound is going to be lost if you eat of this tree. And I'll say more about this next week. But So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a place of, and we can put it like this, it's a place of probation for Adam. It's a place of testing for Adam. 
past this and the life that is indicated by the tree of life can be yours. But let's talk about the name of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's not at this point that Adam... It's important to reflect on this. It's not at this point that Adam didn't know what good and evil was. He knew that God is good. And all the good things that God was giving him. But he's just found out what what would constitute evil. God has just warned him of the consequences of disobedience. So he knows what good and evil is. As information, he knows what it is. So the point of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not that if you eat of it, then somehow it imparts to you a knowledge and bits of information. Well, how do we understand this then? Well, the, the word for knowledge is also connected with the idea of choosing in the Hebrew. It's a tree of choosing of good and evil. And that's the point. You see, this is a a place of probation. Would Adam be a covenant keeper? Or would he be a covenant breaker? So we see that in the garden, there's this test set out for Adam. And it's worth reflecting on just how easy it ought to have been for Adam. Think of the abundance of all the trees in the garden. He could have his pick of anyone he likes. He could have anything he wanted. Just not that one tree. Thousands of yeses. Have all those. One little tiny no. Don't have that one. And he could have everything that he needed. So this was a simple probationary test. Holding out the prospect of a life more glorious than Eden. But of course you and I know that it was not to be. And we'll look at this next week. Adam became a covenant breaker. Not only by himself, but for Eve and all his posterity. What a disaster. What does this all point to? Let me just finish off briefly. This is just the start of the Bible. (laughs) There's so much more to be said. Uh, But was there no hope after the fall? Well, thanks be to God, as we've seen already, there is another way to the tree of life. Is symbolized by that tree. But not through obedience. That's impossible now. The pathway to that has been lost to us. And that's why any religion that says, if only you do these things or keep these precepts or live this kind of life, uh, then you can have eternal life. Uh, you can't. There's no way. That just has to be wrong. There's no way to eternal life through our obedience now. Adam sinned, we have sinned, the pathway is blocked and only judgment for sin remains. Except for this one other way. Which is Jesus Christ. The last Adam who came. The pure and spotless one. Who passed a tougher probation in his act of obedience in this life. He took the place of sinners in his passive obedience on the cross. He was the covenant keeper that we need. And if we can hide in him, then eternal life can be ours. And the hope of glory 
can be ours in Christ. That's why everybody needs Jesus Christ. But you can't get to heaven without Jesus Christ. You can't have the glory that's held out for us without Jesus Christ. Christianity, as it truly is, doesn't just hold out for us a manual for living. It holds out to us a saviour for life. We just need to trust him in all our weakness and sin. And he will take us to it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for the depth and the riches of it. And we pray that you would fill us with the hope of glory in Jesus Christ. Amen.